Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, YU Observations. I'm Benji Gottesman, joined by my co-host, Elisheva Hirsch. Hi, Elisheva. Hi, guys. So excited to be back. Today, we're talking about the issue of cheating on campus uh, when it comes to, to tests, uh, to homework, uh, and to the entire category of academic integrity uh, as a whole. We're going to bring on the Rosh Yeshiva of Daniel Feldman Shlita to talk about the issue from a halachic and hashkafic perspective. But before we get into the nitty-gritty detail of the topic, we thought it would be important to discuss, you know, why it's relevant at all. And I think, you know, the answer is obvious, you know, because cheating exists on campus. Uh, so, like, Shava, tell us more about that. Yeah, so I think all of us have heard conversations either, you know, about ourselves or mutterings or not mutterings, actual out loud conversations in various places on campus about how people cheat, why they cheat, and kind of, at least in my experience, in a very like open and honest way, the point of like, there's not really, in my opinion, so much embarrassment about it. It's a very open conversation topic. And we wanted to just discuss why that is maybe, and if it really is okay in certain situations, if it's never okay. But yeah, the idea is just that it is a very relevant thing, unfortunately, across our campus. And we wanted to open the conversation about it even further. Uh, so, Ellie Shevis, what might be the most hawkish opinion that we've encountered? So, Benji and I were discussing the different opinions that we found, and we decided that they sort of fit into a couple different categories. Right, Benji? I mean, yeah. So, one is those hawkish people I was referring to. You know, the real, real zealots. Cheating is awful. I would never cheat. And everyone who cheats is wrong in cheating the system. I think Ellie Shevin and myself might be partial to that. Maybe not as strong, but definitely take a stand against it. You know, on the other end is obviously the people who cheat themselves. And then we had like an interesting third middle category of people who, who were against it in their own personal lives, um, but were totally fine with other people doing it. So I think that a really interesting one to start with is the people who are very open about it, almost like proud of maybe we can even say. Brazen is a good word. Yeah, fine. Brazen's better a little bit. But the first one would be from an SDW student. She says, maybe if people didn't make things hard for no reason, I wouldn't cheat, period. Enough said. I mean, it's not enough said. <laughs> who, are the, who are the people? Yeah, I think, I guess the sentiment is just maybe she feels that the professors place unfair and unrealistic expectations on their students to the point where they're almost... I guess the opinion would be giving them no other option other than cheating. I think we would say like there always is another option maybe, but I it's a valid opinion we've, that we've heard. My question is, is, what does it mean difficult? What does it mean hard? Is the implication that Yeshiva University is more difficult than other colleges? Maybe like the dual curriculum. I don't know. Oh yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think more needs to be said on that. Yeah. What, what else do we have? So another one that I think is along the same similar lines is I think cheating is bad, but I also think a lot of students feel like they have no choice because of school pressure and peers, like if they see all their friends getting good grades and they're going for the same profession and they're worried they might struggle in the same field. If you're cheating, then are you, one could argue you're not really learning the material. So once you even get to that profession, will you be able to succeed? That said, you know, that, that argument resonates with me more the undue pressure felt by young people is well documented, both you know, in academia, but also just you know, in the experiential reality of our lives. Uh, I definitely get it. When cheating is so easy, it's not that you feel like you have no other option, but it's just the easy way out of a really unfair situation a lot of times. 
I think also probably like if you're in a major or like she said, like a profession where you're all trying to get into what feels like a few select graduate schools and you all look the same on a resume, that can be stressful as well. So who did we have on the other side, Elisheva? Then we also had like, we do it, but we don't like when others do it, which I think you had an interview. I spoke to Yisrael Tannenbaum, the, uh, the junior representative at Yeshiva University. His point was like, look, I would never cheat, but I mind my own business. And if other people feel that that's what they need to do to get ahead, that's what they feel they need to do to get ahead. I, I respect it. I, I hear it. I think there is like, you know, a sort of a religious backing to that where I stand before God on my own two feet and how everyone else stands is, is their business. Yeah, at the same time, what about communal responsibility? Does that aspect exist here? Are we allowed to say that I, I stand in my own in my own four cubits and I don't really care what anybody else do, does? If they do the right thing, they do the wrong thing, power to them either way. What I think also we should care in terms of being a student in a university that others value learning and academic integrity and this falls into ethics also like in general, that the people coming out of this university who are going to be entering fields of profession should be ethical in nature, which I think when you cheat, that calls that into question. I mean, do you want your kids like future doctors knowing that they cheated on their exams? Like that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, and, and you know, to bring it back to Israel's point, all right, what I would ask right, based, based on what you're saying is can you even exist in a vacuum? Right? Our lives are so interconnected that can you realistically say that I mind my own business and you mind your own business, at a certain point, our businesses are conflated just because of interaction. And I think that brings us into that other category of the people, right? That exactly the people who say that they don't cheat and it also bothers them when other people cheat. I think like kudos to the people who it doesn't bother them when other people cheat, but I can imagine, and I've been in situations where I found out that other people have cheated and I didn't, let's say, and it can be very frustrating and upsetting Especially, let's say, if you get a lower grade than the other people in the class. Yeah. So here's an opinion from a STEM student. We'll play it. Yeah, so it happens to be I haven't actually had a lot of experience with it. In fact, none since I've been at YU. But I can totally get, because I know I work hard for my classes and I try to be hard. And if I knew that someone else was just cheating or not working hard, I know that would make, not, not make me feel so good. Yeah, so that's the basic idea that it, when you find out that other people are cheating, I guess to some people it doesn't bother them, but to many people it really does. So let's finish it off with one more uh, interesting quote that we thought was, uh, was especially uh, polarizing. This is regarding cheating, so unfairly throwing off the grading curve, but I get it. Not everyone had the resources I did growing up, and a lot of people learned they couldn't succeed unless they cheated. Plus, it's a high-pressure institution with less time off and a dual curriculum. And the culture of disinterest in the student experience, mostly not on faculty's part, but on staff and administrations, means that students don't feel guilty because no one really feels obligated to the school or like they were set up for success. I also think it's worse on wealth because there's a general sentiment of, quote, the rules don't apply to us. So I think it's a lot of interesting points. And so, sort of like applying, you know, more the, the liberal leftist position of, you know, social examination and, you know, an affirmative action type of understanding to how we interact with each other uh, on an academic level, uh, pretty much saying that if people come from different backgrounds, they might not be as well equipped to deal with a situation that the student might be able to deal with. Yeah, I'll give just a quick, you know, whatever example would just be like certain people will hire outside tutors that cost upwards of hundreds of dollars 
and other students will say, if you can't afford that, you're sort of left to the wayside. Especially also with peer tutors are choosing not to work for the university and to charge their own money on the side. So that a lot of the better or you know more qualified peer tutors that could have been working under the university and then offered their services for free to students are charging outside. I got to get in that. I'm making 15 bucks an hour at the writing center, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you. Come, come to the writing center. We do great work. We'll help you. Um, but this is interesting. What I would ask is like, okay, so if cheating is wrong, which it is, is what are the administration, uh, what are teachers going to do to address that divide? Obviously, you know, there was that barb thrown in at the end, quote, I also think it's worse on Wilf because the general sentiment of the rules don't apply to us. So this quote was submitted anonymously. I don't know who submitted it. First of all, you know, Wilf campus is a rather diverse place. This person is referring to a specific demographic uh, in the Wilf campus. I, I mean, I can't even think of what that demographic would be, right? That the rules don't apply to us. Alicia, have you have any thoughts? No, I don't. I'm not. I don't think I, I'm well equipped to talk about Wilf, but yeah. I would be interested to hear what she said. So if she's interested yeah, in following up. I just don't know what that's about. People should be careful before speaking out of pocket about a large group of people, especially in a pejorative way. Well, I think it's also relevant to this conversation. Obviously, like the nuances of cheating are very complicated and we get into that with Ruth Feldman. Certain things are less complicated, I think, and are more black and white, but like everything with ethics, especially things can can be different on a case-by-case basis and blanket statements are never what we should be making. I have the distinct pleasure right now of uh, of introducing Rev. Daniel Feldman, uh, Rosh Yeshiva, our esteemed institution, and an expert in the field of ethics, specifically with academic integrity. So now we're joined by uh, Rev. Daniel Feldman, one of the Russia Yeshiva at Yeshiva University with a particular expertise in our topic. So when it comes to this issue of cheating, uh, specifically on tests and academic integrity in general, uh, how would the Russia Yeshiva categorize the prohibition? Is it, you know, from the Torah? Is it rabbinic? Is it a, some sort of midas chasidis, a pious trait uh, that should be exemplified, not necessarily uh, obligatory? Uh, what is the root of this issue? So at a minimum, if one is cheating on a test, at a minimum, there's a violation there of what we call Geneva's das. Uh, the Gemara in Meseches Chulin tells us that there is a strong and across-the-board prohibition to engage in behavior that creates a deceptive impression, specifically because you want to get something, even if it's something ephemeral, even if it's something non-material, but you want to get somebody's good opinion of you, and therefore you are acting in a deceptive way, so they'll think that you are something that's not actually true. So that's what we call Gnevas Das. It would literally translate to you are stealing someone's opinion, stealing someone's impression. And if you're cheating on a test, at a minimum, that's your goal. You're trying to create some kind of a false impression, either get the effect across that you have studied when you haven't actually, or that you're more knowledgeable or hardworking than you actually are. So at a minimum, there's Gnevis Das involved, and there's a whole discussion as to what exactly the source is, but it is something that you're getting under false pretenses, and therefore should rightfully be turned to Geneva, or it's possibly like Rabbi Yona understood, covered under the rubric of Shekhar, because it's an act of deception and an act of substantial deception. You're getting something out of this deception. It's not harmless and therefore should be covered under the rubric of Shakir. There are a few other theories as well as to what might be the source, 
but is likely a Torah prohibition. Even if that's all that's happening, that you're just creating the impression that you worked harder or that you're more knowledgeable than you are, so there should be any of this das involved. Also, monetary theft involved. Through cheating on a test, if you're going to have a different ranking in the class, you're going to have a more impressive resume. So that could involve stealing in the monetary sense, stealing from somebody who might give you a job or an award or some kind of recognition based on your academic achievement, and also stealing from your classmates who are competing with you for that same ranking and for that same potential employment or whatever else may come along with their academic achievement. And you're taking it under false pretenses. So at a minimum, there's going to be a involved. It's always going to be there. But very likely, there is a monetary component as well. Um, are there any exceptions, maybe like a situation where you know everyone in the course is definitely cheating and then they're going to do better than you and you'll end up suffering? And then like if the answer is no, like you still can't cheat, then how, how should one go about navigating that sort of a situation? Like should you tell the professor? Can you even tell the professor? Yeah, it's a very difficult situation for students to be put in. And it's very unfortunate when that happens because it's really not fair to the students. The only real advice I have for those students, I think they do have to tell the teacher as unpleasant as that is, and as tricky as that might be for them socially and otherwise, that's really the only fair option because to act in an underhanded manner is always a problem. There's always going to be a midos issue or sometimes going to be an actual prohibition. So you're in a bad situation because if the only way for you to have an even playing field with everyone else is to be cheating yourself, especially if it involves doing something overtly deceptive. So then that's always going to be a problem for your midos, always going to be a overall issue. And that's not really, it's not going to be proper no matter what. So it's not fair for you to suffer in comparison. So you really only have the option of telling the teacher and you may have that obligation anyway, because the teacher is being deceived by the other students. All the honest students are suffering because of whatever is going on. And it's not easy to say because it is a very difficult position for a student to be in, especially if everyone's going to know that they're the ones who told, but it's really the only fair option. And even if you yourself as a student, even if you didn't care, and you were willing to play on this uneven playing field, it's just not fair to the other students. And there's an issue of we call those samad al-damriyecha, that you can't stand idly by when people are being hurt. And if there's cheating going on, so all the honest students, hopefully there are at least a few other honest students in the past, they're suffering. And the teacher is being deceived. Uh, it could be that the teacher is playing a big role in their own deception, but still the teacher is being taken for a ride and you have an obligation to them. And that's also a major factor. So to sort of shift gears for a moment, uh, part of the reason why we're discussing this issue in the first place is because it's our understanding that it's a rather prevalent issue uh, on campus. Uh, and we were wondering, uh, first of all, if the Russian Shiva agrees with that analysis. Um, and second of all, uh, why that might be the case uh, on a campus where, you know, there is really a, a really strong presence uh, of Torah values and a commitment to halacha. Uh, how could this din, whether or not, you know, gneva or sheker to the moral or halachic imperative to, to tell the teacher, regardless of, of how you slice it, uh, why might this be something that's been left behind at Yeshiva University? I hope it's not true. I hope I'm not naive. 
and I, I hope it's not the case. Uh, it's certainly a disgrace if that really is true. And I, I've heard that before. I hope it's not true. I, I personally, maybe I am naive. I don't experience so much within my own context, my own classes. I, I hope I don't sound hopelessly naive by saying that, but I, I think in the context of my classes, there's a lot less room for it. But to the extent that it's true, I could try to be about what kind of pressures the students find themselves under or how they may sometimes be given a misplaced priority about their workload and about the need to get ahead under all costs and circumstances because of the great pressures that come along with life. But uh, clearly that's a, it's a mistaken approach and that we're never going to get ahead by false methods. And you know, there are those, uh, the first Lubavitcher, the Balatanya said, any kind of a transgression is really a denial of God, is really an act of heresy, because if you believe God is running the world, so you wouldn't sin. So that always sounds to me to be a little much because we have a, a tremendous capacity for self-deception and we do things that are bad for us all the time, even though we know they're bad. But in this situation, one really could see there to be a denial of God, because if you think that you're ultimately going to get ahead through this kind of a method, if you think that this is going to lead to you having a more successful life, despite the fact that God runs the world, so then there really is something missing in your basic faith. And I think it's possible also for one to get the mistaken impression somehow that their spiritual life will be better if they focus more on Torah study and maybe there'll be more opportunities if they don't have to spend so much time studying. So that also is a grave mistake and that undermines the whole purpose and essence of your Torah study. Ramosha Feinstein had a chuva about this and there are tremendous pressures and that's something we have to find as various ways to deal with and uh, i hope that we have enough ways to address those pressures and maybe that's something we can provide more but ultimately it's crucial that we understand this is not a way that there's going to be any long-term success and uh, it could create long-term problems uh, this is where you're going to set the foundation for everything that comes afterwards and the crucial need that we have to make a Kiddush Hashem and to show that our values are actually lived and are real and mean something really should mean that Yeshiva University has the least cheating of any school, has no cheating. And I'd like to believe that that's closer to the truth. But uh, if it isn't, I think it's something that we really have to pay very close attention to and really ask ourselves, what are we doing and what are we looking to accomplish in life? And why are we here? So we spoke about things, I think, from the perspective of the students, but to sort of flip things and see from the perspective of the professor, is there a certain level of responsibility on their end to ensure that cheating doesn't take place? Or is it fully on the students to like morally and legally control themselves? And I think it's really applicable because I, I think a common rationalization for cheating is that if the professor really cared, they wouldn't make it so easy to cheat. Yeah, there absolutely is. And that's a complicated kind of point because, yes, it's true, teachers need to care more, but it's not up to them to be also the cheating, so to speak, because the cheating, yes, it deceives them, but it also deceives the system, it deceives future employers, it deceives the other students in the class, it deceives the whole society. And it's not up to the teachers to be okay with that. And it's a complicated point because it's hard for all the teachers to be working off the same standards. So there are all kinds of inconsistencies that unfortunately we have to live with. I certainly have devoted a tremendous amount of time over my 
my teaching career to try to figure out really what is fair as a, a teacher and devoted a, a ton of attention to that, to trying to come up with a system that I'm always trying to refine in order to try to really have a system that is fair to the students and fair to the system and fair to the future. And I don't think I have the answer yet because it's a, a constantly evolving process. But yes, the teacher absolutely has a responsibility not to make it easy to cheat for sure, not to make it too tempting to cheat and not to create an environment that is unfair to the honest students. That's the opposite of what they want to do. And the Talmud tells us that there absolutely is a, a situation we call that one could violate the Torah's prohibition of putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. And here we mean those who are disadvantaged, perhaps morally or otherwise, and are inclined to acting in an improper fashion and to tempt someone to do that or to make it easy or more possible for someone to do that is a Torah prohibition. And the Gemara is clear in expressing it that way in a number of contexts. So for example, the Talmud says that if I lend somebody money without witnesses, so then I violate that prohibition because I'm making it too easy and too tempting for them to deny later that they borrowed money. It's a good question why we don't find people careful about this today. There's an extensive literature about that in the, the halachic writings. That point aside, that's what the Talmud does say. So it makes it clear that if I create a situation where somebody who's working with me will find it too tempting and too easy to take advantage of me, so then I'm violating with Naivir. I'm putting them in a situation that is wrong and that is a Torah violation. So certainly for teachers to put students in a position like that, really inappropriate and unfair to everyone around them. Now, we also have to recognize that it's hard for teachers to keep up because there's so many different strategies and there's so much technology that they may not even be aware of and they may not know what's available to the students. And it's not necessarily always fair to put that burden on the teachers without having a comprehensive sense of what's possible and what's not possible. Uh, so I don't want to sound too judgmental. Uh, so again, this is something that I work very hard with in my classes. And I don't want to sound naive, but I, I think that in my classes, essentially cheating just isn't really possible because it wouldn't really help you so much. So I try to give tests and assignments where there just isn't that much to gain by, you know, for example, if one would know all the questions in advance, it wouldn't really change anything because I try to give very comprehensive kinds of tests. So I try to have a setting where there isn't really much of a possibility of cheating and may, may or may not be possible for every teacher to do that. But there certainly is a responsibility that they have absolutely not to make it too easy or too tempting and to be fair to their other students who are trying to be honest. And certainly no teacher wants to be in the position of saying to the honest students, well, you know, that's your problem that they're acting this way and your mistake for trying to be an honest person of integrity. Nobody wants to be sending that message. And there absolutely is a bilateral responsibility here. Even if the professor makes it easy, let's say, to cheat, it's still not never okay for the students to cheat, correct? Yeah, you know, the definition of cheating has to be figured out in, in every setting. But, uh, and the teacher does have the right to say what they care about and what they don't care about. So, you know, if a teach, one teacher gives an open book test and one teacher doesn't give an open book test, so it's not cheating to use your book and the teacher says it's okay. You know, the teacher has the right to decide when they're upfront about it and when they're creating a policy that's going to, be applied equally to all the students. So we have to figure out what we mean when we say teacher's okay with the teacher says this is something that is acceptable within the parameters of what I'm looking for here. So then it's not cheating. But 
the assumption that, okay, there's a, they left their desk open and you can steal the answers and half the students are going to do that and half the students aren't going to do that, but she should have locked her desk. And I don't think that's really a very effective point. And the teacher is not actually okay with it. They just haven't taken enough steps to prevent it from happening. And together, the honest students are going to be hurt by that. And it's not up to the teacher to be okay with that. So, so we'll conclude with the one last point. We've been talking a lot uh, about what people should do in the future, uh, but how should people deal with their past? Uh, how is it possible to do tshuva for this particular issue? Uh, usually we would assume that if it's like ben adam makom, it's very easy. You just do tshuva between yourself and God. Yeah, but it seems like we're saying here that this is, you know, ben adam It's rooted in, in thievery. It's between man and his fellow. So how would that shuba work? Does somebody have to go to a professor or, or the administration or an employer? What does the Rosh Yeshiva think should be the, the next steps? Yeah, that's a very, very thorny question, although I'm very glad to hear that shuba about other lochum is easy. That was news to me, so that, that's good to know. But uh, I'm not sure how easy that is, but you're certainly right that it's far more complex in this kind of situation. You know, the Talmud talks about how that the consequences of false measurements are very, very severe, even more than an Avera in the context of Arayos. And Rashi explains that when you steal from the public, it's very hard to do anything about it. It's very hard to return what was taken. And uh, there is nonetheless a discussion about trying to engage in public welfare in a way that offsets what you've done, but it's, uh, it's really going to be a question in every circumstance. And the consequences for cheating, as we know, are very severe from an academic perspective. And I'd worry a little bit if that creates a disincentive for someone from coming forward because they're not able to tolerate whatever is going to come along with it. I wonder if there's a way to what we would call a takanas hashavin to make it more possible and bearable for a person to come forward and acknowledge what they did and have some kind of a workable path for correction. It's not something can address across the board because every situation is going to have a different set of consequences just in terms of what was the impact of the cheating and is going to have different avenues as far as addressing it. But this is not your question, but it's one of these situations where an ounce of prevention is really worth a pound of cure because it's very hard to fix afterwards. And whether it's hard because it just isn't really much of a path or it's hard because the consequences are going to really be so extreme if you come forward too late that it's, uh, it's very, very difficult. So this is the time to really internalize just how destructive it is to go down this path and how hard it is to fix and how much this is not something you want on your conscience, possibly for your whole life, to know that your whole career got off on very much the wrong foot. And it's not your question because you're asking what the path is for tshuva. And for that, I would have to say in every case, we'd have to look at it, what we can do and what we can accomplish. But certainly the takeaway is that this is really not something you want in your conscience. It's really not something you want in your history. It's not something you want in your record. And that we should think very, very, very hard about who we want to be when we enter into that exam room. We want to thank the Rosh Hashiva so much for coming on. Thank you. And hopefully everyone should have well-earned and honest success on their exams. And uh, we should all continue to grow in all areas of Torah and life. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, just wanted to share a quick Tvar Torah, like we try to do at the end of every episode. 
So this idea is going to be from Rav Soloveitchik, and you can find it in the book called Days of Deliverance, Essays on Perm and Hanukkah, specifically the essay called Joseph and Hanukkah. So the Rav begins by explaining that it's no coincidence that every year Hanukkah falls on either one or both partiot of Ayeshev and Mikates. Both Parshio tell the story of Yosef and his sale into slavery. So there must be some connection between Hanukkah and Yosef. So Yosef has a special coat that his father made for him called the Ketonat Hapasim. And it was this beautiful multicolored coat with stripes that the Rav says was kind of like Yosef's banner of power. And it also acts as the symbol of the Jewish people for every generation to come, including that of the Hashemonaim, which we know are the central sort of heroes of the Hanukkah story. So what is the symbolism behind the multicolored striped nature of the Ketonet Hapasim coat? It's all based on Yosef's two famous dreams. The first of which was about the Alumot, these sheaves of wheat that symbolized his brothers, and they were all bowing down to his sheaf of wheat in the middle. The second dream was of the sun, moon, and 11 stars, also representative of his brothers, bowing down to his star. According to the Rav, the first dream with the wheat represents Yosef's dream for material or economic, political power, wealth, and success. And the second dream with the stars represents Yosef's striving dream for spiritual greatness. This idea of wanting to be loved and respected for his morals, his kindness, his goodness, his following in the ways of Hashem. At first glance, one might think that these two dreams can't coexist. And instead, you might have to choose one over the other, that there's no way for the spiritual and the material dreams to both be fulfilled. But Yosef disagreed. And he thought that these dreams could be combined and fulfilled. And that belief in the power of both being able to come true is physically represented by the multicolor nature of his coat, his ketonet hapasim. How? It's not a one color of a coat. It's not a monotone coat. It's made of many different colors that sometimes go together. Sometimes colors can clash. But for him, they all were able to coexist to create one masterpiece of a coat. This represents how Yosef lived and realized both of those dreams. He did achieve that great political power and success as he became the second in command over Egypt, and he saved the nation from a terrible famine with his wise ideas. But at the same time, he also reached incredible spiritual heights for who he was, and he was revered. He is still revered for his ethical nature, his kindness, his strong moral will. So Rob Salvechik explains that his ketonet possum symbol of the striving to achieve both the material and the spiritual dreams actually holds true for every generation of Jews to come, including, like we said earlier, the Hashemunayim. In the Hanukkah story, the Hashemunayim battled the Romans with their physical strength. They were incredibly strong warriors. That's the material dream. But at the moment when they finally reached that material dream and they actually beat the Romans, they stopped, and in the Rav's words, they laid down their swords, and they rushed to find this one small jug of oil through which they could light the base Hamikdash's menorah and restore the house of Hashem to like this holy kadosh, pure place. In that moment, they fulfilled the spiritual dream. So yes, they had the material dream and that they won the war and achieved political power for the Jews, but they also achieved the, that spiritual heights by restoring the base Hamikdash, and that's the connection. The Rav explains between Hanukkah and the story of Yosef, 
and the connection to us today. And I think at YU, we really see both of these dreams at play. We're trying to academically succeed so that we can reach the professional level we want. That might be what we would call the material dream of that dream of, of the wheat. But at the same time, we also hopefully want to spiritually thrive and grow and fulfill our spiritual dreams, follow the Torah's ways, Hashem's ways. That's what we would call that dream of Yosef's, the sun, moon, and stars. And sometimes, like with the colors in the Katona Possum, maybe we could think that the colors clash. Like maybe in order to do well in one, we have to sacrifice the other. And I think that's where our conversation in the podcast today about cheating really comes into play. That's where maybe the question could arise in a mind do we have to sacrifice the spiritual dream in order to achieve the material dream and maybe make a less ethical decision? But I think if we remember, we're able to keep in mind this physical image of the Ketonata Possum, of this multicolored coat in which the colors wove together to create one beautiful coat that acts as a symbol for us today, we remember that we can actually hold and follow both values at once and that maybe making the ethical choice doesn't mean we're going to fail at the material dream, that throughout Jewish history, our ancestors were able to maintain both, and God willing, we can too. And I think if we remember this and really try to place both values and hold them together at once, God willing, with Hashem's help, he'll help us succeed at both dreams and reach the highest heights we can both in material and spiritual greatness. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of YU Observation. If you enjoyed, be sure to rate, review, and share with friends. Hit the subscribe button so you're notified when the next episode is live. Thanks again, and have a great day.